Well, good morning, First Baptist Fisherville and others joining us by way of uh, streaming this morning. We want to be called to worship on this Lord's Day together with Psalm 46. And the scriptures say to us and teach us these words, that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord. And that's our invitation this morning. To come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Church, the Lord God Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So wherever you are this morning, let's worship our God today.
God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. heavenly saints. Let earth and heavenly saints proclaim the power and might of His great name. Let us exalt on bended knee. Praise God the We say praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who through your great mercy had given us 
a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. Father, we recognize in that glorious truth that praise is a gift purchased by the blood of your Son and applied by the Spirit of Christ. And that's why we praise Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit this morning. And Father, we, we confess your greatness today. We, we confess your goodness. We, we confess that you are infinite in your perfections, that you are wise. And Lord, that it's not just our souls that will be saved in the end. It will be our bodies and this created order that is currently filled with plagues and viruses and storms. It's a groaning world, as Paul describes it. But we have a hope in Jesus Christ, raised from the grave, who is the template, a microcosm of that new creation. And that's why we, this morning, gather through Facebook Live to sing your praise. But we recognize that for our praise to comport with your glory and your greatness, we need your spirit to attend to our service today. We pray that your spirit would grant us illumination in your excellencies, your beauties, your glories, and our need for you. We pray that your spirit would attend to our singing that we may sing in a manner that is faithful to who you are. We pray that your spirit would attend to the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word. And we pray that your name would be magnified even as your people are built up in their faith. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit is at work even now among those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. Lord, that they today would see their need for Jesus and flee to him. And as Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, that they would find their refuge in the one who came and died on the cross for sinners and was raised from the grave for our justification. And we ask these things for our King's sake, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Church, as we're gathered here in this place, just a few of us, we know you're scattered. I want to do a new song this morning. Um, in such difficult and trying times, it's critical that we root our confidence and our hope and take all of our fears, in fact, to the person, to the promises of God revealed to us in his word. And so we do want to show you a new song this morning written less than a month ago and put scripture to melody. So let's sing, sing these words together as you hear them from Numbers chapter 7 and let our souls find rest in the word of God.
Fisherville Church, if you would turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 10. Indeed, he is for you in Jesus Christ. God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. How much more will he in him freely give us all things? That's our hope. And it's a glorious hope. Well, let's pray and we'll get into our text this morning. Father of mercy, thank you that you have made provision for our greatest need. And that's not physical health. It's not financial stability. It's to resolve our legal guilt before a righteous and holy judge. And you have resolved it in your son who came and fulfilled the terms of the law for us and then was crushed on the cross for our unrighteousness. And you have raised him from the dead, signaling the debt has been paid. For those who would trust. Lord, that's why we gather this morning as those who trust. And we pray, Lord, as we consider 2 Samuel 10, it would provoke us by your spirit to trust even more. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. For those who know Heather, my wife, you know that she is a Texan through and through. And though we have lived in Kentucky for almost 18 years, and we have grown to love Kentucky and love the people of Kentucky, her heart state remains Texas. Now, the first year I was here at Fisherville in 2010, her beloved grandmother died. Now, her grandmother 
was known for many things. One of those things was for growing beautiful crepe myrtles, which is the state shrub of Texas. And so in memory of her grandmother and out of love for her native state, Texas, she brought back some crepe myrtles from the funeral, her grandmother's funeral, which were cut from her grandmother's own plants. And Heather planted those crepe myrtles around our house. And for that time, a bit of Texas visibly thrived in the perimeter of our house. In other words, Texas appeared in Kentucky. A bit of Texas, that is. Analogously, David's kingdom is at its apex, a bit of heaven appearing in the Middle East. By David's kingdom, we get to see something of the righteousness, the loving kindness, the hesed, that Hebrew word, steadfast love and goodness of our Lord and his kingdom as expressed through his king. Now in the first nine chapters of 2 Samuel 9, we've seen God's kingdom gloriously expressed through his king, David. We've observed the splendor of his victories over the house of Saul, 2 Samuel 2 to 5. His victory over the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, over the Philistines, over the Moabites and the Edomites and, and the Syrians, etc., and we have seen David's beneficence as he blesses his people with, with goodness and kindness and righteousness and justice. He brings justice, for instance, against the proposed, purported killer of, of Saul. Even though Saul had sought to kill David for over a decade. He initiates public mourning after the death of Saul's military commander, Abner. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord when he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And last week we saw him, uh, saw him show hesed and steadfast love to of all people, Mephibosheth, the lamed remaining member of a rival dynasty. This week, uh, this week we see something as remarkable as that. David show hesed to a pagan king and pagan nation. Two verses, I think, in chapter 8 will summarize the first half of 2 Samuel. We are, we are completing the first section of 2 Samuel today in chapter 10. I think these two verses, I think, express the kind of kingdom that David ruled over and was expressed in the Middle East. One that gives a concise statement about his victories, which should give us encouragement because he points to someone greater and his goodness. Chapter 8, verse 14, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity or righteousness to all his people. Now all of us, are in a strange and disconcerting place right now. None of us have ever lived through something like this that we're seeing with this 
universal problem with the virus. And at face value, it would be easy to think that a text like 2 Samuel 10, which is a text about battles in the ancient Near East, that it has little relevance for us who are struggling with what we're struggling with. But I would submit that this global crisis has brought us nearer to what a believer of that day would have contended with on a regular, even daily basis than ever before. Many of the so-called securities that we thought we had, but have been potentially compromised, really drives home that we have a better idea of what life was like in 1000 BC. In other words, these texts were written to people who always sensed potential for loss and danger on the horizon. And their need is our need. To be reminded that the Lord is good, that the Lord is in control, and that his anointed Messiah King will prevail. And that brings us to the first point in chapter 10. God's kingdom expressed through his Messiah King is a benevolent kingdom. Isn't that a good word for us this morning? Look with me in verse 1. After this, that is, after the account of chapter 9 where he bestows favor on Mephibosheth and essentially adopts him into his family... After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. Now we saw Nahash introduced in 1 Samuel 11. We saw that his name means serpent, and he was nothing less than a serpent. He brought great devastation and threat to the people of Israel, especially Jabesh Gilead. And Saul won his, really, his first battle against uh, these Ammonites. But now Nahash is dead, and his son Hanan has succeeded him. Now, in the ancient Near East, when a, when a great king died, now, he wasn't great in character, but he was great in importance for his people. When a great king died, oftentimes there was instability that would come to a kingdom. And this would have been a perfect time for David to take advantage of that. But that's not what he does. Again, notice in verse 2, it says, David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, the English Standard Version doesn't pick this up as well as I think it should. But chapter 10 begins just like chapter 9, with David's desire to show Hesed. We saw last week in chapter 9, verse 1, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. That's the Hebrew word hesed. Covenantal love, covenantal commitment. We saw it in 
chapter 3, or or verse 3 of chapter 9, that I may show the hesed of God, that I may show the kindness of God. And then we saw it in chapter 9, verse 7. I will show you hesed, kindness, for the sake of your father Jonathan. It's the same word here in chapter 10. I believe there's a direct connection that the English translation does not pick up. I will deal loyally. I will deal with hesed, with Hanan, the son of Nahash. Now, this is quite the shock if you recognize the kind of enemy the Ammonites were for Israel. And so now the new king of the Ammonites will be offered the same hesed that Mephibosheth was offered in chapter 9. In chapter 9, it's the hesed offered to an undeserving person in Israel. And here in chapter 10, this hesed, this covenantal love is offered to a pagan rival king and nation. And as David showed hesed to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake, here he is offering hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, loyalty to Hanan for his son or his father Nahash's sake. Which I think reminds us of 2 Samuel verse 19. Back in chapter 7, God had made covenant with David. Glorious promises in that covenant that his son would have an everlasting kingdom. But in chapter 7 verse 19 says, this is the law of man. This is the instruction for mankind. In other words, the promises made to David would also be promises that would bless the nations. And again, that goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant where God says that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And so we see that in a kind of a micro way here in chapter 10. Evidently, Nahash at some point, and the Bible does not reveal that, had given David some kind of protection and provision when Saul was chasing David all those years. And David now is compelled to show kindness to Mephibosheth through his son. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. God's kingdom expressed through his Messiah king is not only a benevolent kingdom. It's an opposed kingdom. Now notice with me in the second part of verse 2. It says, so David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David was sent, has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city? And to spy it out and to overthrow it. So this is a pagan's response to God's anointed and his offer of mercy and kindness. And this suspicious spirit towards the kingdom of God and towards God's king is predominant in our world. And it's ultimately an unbelief at the end of the day, in the goodness of our Lord 
and the goodness of his king. But this kind of suspicious spirit also poisons human relationships. A a distrustful, suspicious spirit destroys our ability to see the good intentions from others, God's goodness in others. Puritan Matthew Henry writes, those that bear ill will to their neighbors are resolved not to believe their neighbors bear any good will to them. And that, I would submit to you, is most natural to us in our carnal state. But when we are suspicious of others, and it is a common thing you see, unfortunately, even in Christ's church at times, it's gangrenous. And that's why a church is only as healthy as its many members are filled by the Spirit. Because the only way to overcome this kind of suspicious spirit, which is a part of our old nature, is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. Or that suspicious spirit will prevail in the end. And right now we see that it's prevailing, at least for a time here. And suspicious spirits always express themselves in wicked behavior. Look with me in verse 4. So Hanan took David's garments, or servants, and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, a man's beard in Israel and in the ancient Near East represented his dignity as a man. Leviticus 19, verse 27. To shave it signaled sorrow. Isaiah 15, verse 2. But to have a shave forced upon you was humiliation. And to pile on the humiliation, they only shave half the beard. And then to add insult to injury, their clothes were cut off in the middle of their hips, showing their nakedness, shame. Now notice verse 5. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. Here they are just obeying their king, and they get humiliated. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And so David here is seeking to restore the honor So he would wait for them until their beards had grown back. This is the kindness. This is the hesed of the king. In this world opposed, we believers will be humiliated at times. We'll feel marginalized at times. And our king is there to show holy compassion and to defend us. And somehow the Amalekites or the Ammonites knew this. Notice in verse 6, when the Ammonites saw they had become a stench to David... The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah. We read about them in 2 Samuel 8. 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maacah with a thousand men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. 
picture this. This is a, a hopeless situation, naturally speaking. This is a situation where it appears there's no hope for Israel. There's no hope for, you could say, the kingdom of God. But these men knew what they had done. But there's no contrition. Actually, they go all out on an outright rebellion. It just didn't occur to them to throw themselves on the mercy of the king. To throw themselves on the mercy of David for having sinned against him. To seek his forgiveness. No, they harden in their opposition. And in so doing, not only do they forfeit mercy, but they bring greater trouble on themselves. And this is always the case. It's always the case when we refuse to humble ourselves and repent of our sins. And we remain in this kind of obstinate state. It always leads to increased hardening of the heart. It is a dangerous place to be. That's true of every relationship before God. As God pours out his goodness, as God pours out his kindness on us, and we refuse to be melted by that kindness and that goodness, it hardens us towards him even more. It's also true of all human relationships. When I refuse to repent of my attitude towards another person, it hardens me. Not just towards that person, it hardens me in life. You can't just have one area of sin in your life and it not affect the whole person. We are holistic beings. And the Ammonites' obstinance here to David is seen by their establishing a coalition of forces against the kingdom of God. Now I want you to think about this. This war began with one suspicious group. One group who was suspicious of the goodness of the king. In this case, I think this is an example of Psalm 2, of these confederates bowing their necks up against God's king. In that very important psalm, Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So in one sense, you could say that this text is a miniature of Psalm 2. And it preaches to us that in spite of all resistance, and this is so hopeful for us today, the anointed king's rule will prevail in the end. And that's our assurance at times like this. That brings us to the final aspect of this chapter. We've seen God's kingdom expressed through his Messiah king as a benevolent kingdom. It's also an opposed kingdom. But finally, we're going to see it's a prevailing kingdom. It prevails in the end. Look with me in verse 7. When David heard of it, he sent Joab... And all the host of the mighty men, the mighty men, we've already seen them introduced, David's mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah 
were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. Now he strategizes here. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians who were the most acute threat. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother. We've already seen Abishai in our text. And he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said... If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Isn't that beautiful community? We need each other. And they recognize that. Generally, we don't recognize it until some kind of crisis hits. That's why prosperity is not always the best thing for Christ's church. Sometimes you need crises to be reminded, to have that veil lifted, to have the, the curtain turned back, to remind us that we need each other. And so when Joab became aware of the enemy's tactics of putting battle lines in front and behind him, he makes a very strategic plan that would permit him to deal with both threats simultaneously. But it took the whole group, it took the whole community, the whole army. And it was a wise plan. But as strong as his strategy was, his theology in this text is stronger. In fact, it's the theological meat of the chapter, which is remarkable because thus far we have not seen Joab to be a bastion of spiritual maturity. In fact, later on in, the, in 2 Samuel, we're going to see that he's not as mature as his confession is in verse 12. Notice in verse 12, beautiful words. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people. And for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab encourages his people to do two things. First of all, he says, be courageous. Now, when we are given commands, binding commands in Scripture, they're always preceded by one of two things. The promises of God, which precede those commands, that makes those commands make sense and doable, are the character of God. And here we see the character of God grounding that command to be courageous. Because the second thing he says here is trust the goodness of God. Again, let's read verse 12. He says, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now this is high and glorious theology. Faith in God's goodness, faith in God's sovereignty, and human effort and responsibility are not incompatible. In fact, our responsibility is grounded by God's sovereignty and goodness. And Joab's faith here, I think, is instructive for us. It wasn't because he knew ahead of time what the Lord was going to do. He had no idea what the Lord was going to do in this battle. There's no specific promise given to Joab about this battle's outcome. 
Joab knew one thing. The Lord would do good. And that is the heart of chapter 10. It's the only direct mention of God in this chapter. You know, biblical faith is not believing that God is going to do what you want him to do. Our wants, our desires, our preferences are tainted. They're tainted by two things. First of all, they're tainted by human finitude. What do I mean by that? We're finite beings. We don't even know what we should want. We don't even know what we should desire and what our preferences should be. We're so finite. But the second thing that taints our desires is our fallibility. And so we're finite and we're fallible. Our fallibility makes us want the wrong things out of selfishness and self-love. Biblical faith is knowing, believing that the Lord is good and he does what is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, that wonderful chapter on the Scripture where he is contemplating on the goodness of God as revealed in the Scripture. The psalmist says, you are good and you do good. Isn't that a good word? Psalm 85, verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good. We need to renew our minds in those truths and not allow what we see in the media and what we see in the culture and what we see with our crisis to determine reality. No, the Lord will give what is good. In that very well-known verse in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I love that. Goodness follows to provide. Mercy follows to pardon. That's our God. Jesus himself said, No one is good except God. And what is good is determined by him not us. And Joab, for that moment, whether he was speaking greater than he knew, he appears to know this. And armed with that high theology, notice in verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. I love that. It appeared to be a situation of hopelessness, and they fled. Apparently no bloodshed, but it was a swift and a complete victory. The enemy simply flees. Then in verse 14, when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And so Joab comes back to Jerusalem because the threat had receded, but not for long. Verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and headed Ezer. We saw him in chapter 8, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. So they are now 
under the lordship of Hadazizer, who was the most powerful king in that region. And it looks really bad. But at this point, David gets personally involved. Verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. This time, there was bloodshed. The balloon payment came due. You cannot continue to resist the king. At some point, justice will be served. And the victory was David's. The earlier embarrassment at the hands of Joab had basically brought the Syrians underneath Hadadezer. That was their motivation in order to strengthen their resolve. But then their loss to David provokes a very different response. This is beautiful. And the reason this is beautiful is we realize that we're not just reading about some story in a history book. It's pointing to something much greater. Verse 19. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace, shalom, with Israel and became subject to them. They willingly submitted to Israel. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And so this account ends with a statement of great importance. The Aramaeans of Mesopotamia were no longer willing to ally themselves with David's enemies. Instead, to use Psalm 2 language, verse 12, they kiss the sun, the anointed. They find their refuge in the sun. The difference? David. David, they had now for the first time beheld the person, the work, and the worth of God's Messiah King. And at that point, their knees bowed. Well, let's close this out with some closing thoughts from this chapter. Remember, this is a text of covenant history. It's a different kind of history than anything you read in a historical history book. It's true history. It happened time and space. Sometimes you read history in history books and it's revised history. This is true history for one thing. But the second reason this is important is that we're reading about us. This was written primarily to believers those who are in covenant with the Lord through his king, the Messiah king. And here we see two truths that I think are so encouraging for us as we close out this text. The first truth is this. No opposition to the kingdom of God will prevail in the end. No opposition to the kingdom of God will prevail in the end, whether it is warring nation states or a sin-cursed created order. 
that contains raging viruses. No opposition will prevail in the end. This is God's world. This is his king's world. The kingdom of God will be the only thing standing in the end. In fact, Paul seems to be reflecting on that reality in 1 Corinthians 15. Where that great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was raised, what we have there is the inaugural aspect of the new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the invading of the new creation into this present age. Of course, Paul recognizes it's just an inaugural aspect of the new creation. But it points to the, the greater new creation to come when he returns. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. I love this verse. Then comes the end. That is when Christ returns. To finish what he started. When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. That's a glorious hope for us today. We see that in this passage. The only thing standing in the end after all the conflict all the apparent hopelessness was the kingdom of God expressed through his Messiah King. The second thing that we can be comforted by in this text, and it's one of the great confessions in our Bible, we see that the Lord will ultimately do what seems good to him. Joab's faith rested in that alone. No specifics. No specifics were given to Joab. Likewise with us. The Lord doesn't give us specific, individual, customized promises that every dream we have, every desire we have will happen. He doesn't do that. The one thing that Joab did know was that the Lord would do what is good in his sight. The goodness of God means... That he's the final standard of good. He's the final standard of good, not us. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. 17th century Puritan Thomas Manton says, He is good of himself, good in himself, yeah, good itself. It's all from him and in him if it be good. And this is the heart of chapter 10. I think this is the key part of chapter 10 for us. Biblical faith is not believing that the Lord is going to do what you want him to do. He's not a genie in a bottle. It's knowing that the Lord is good and that he does what is good. And what is good is determined by him, not us. Indeed, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good for those who love God. And are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a great truth for us? Now that doesn't mean, think about a recipe. It doesn't mean that every individual ingredient of the recipe is good in itself. But God works all the ingredients together for a beautiful recipe. And this is such an important truth for us in this season that we're in. In the end, the Lord is going to show us that our hope was, in him was not in vain. In the end. And yet we have to be willing to be left in suspense 
on how he is going to ultimately show his faithfulness to us. We have to be willing to be left in suspense right now. For example, we ask him, give us this day our daily bread. And that is a very crucial prayer, isn't it? Taught by our Lord. But that doesn't guarantee when he answers that we won't lose our job. It doesn't guarantee that our 401k is going to stay healthy and strong. We leave that in his hands as he does whatever he pleases, trusting that the whatever that he does please will be good in the end. Of course, we know his goodness supremely, not in David. The very next chapter will show us that. But in the one in whom David points, the mediator of God's goodness, the mediator of God's hesed, to Hanan-like characters like us. Paul may have been reflected on that in Titus 3 when he says these glorious words. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He doesn't just save us from enemy armies. He comes to save us from the wrath of God by taking the wrath in our place. Now, if someone rejects that mercy, as we saw with Hanan and the Ammonites today, that's not on God. That's not on the king. That's on you. Paul raises, in fact, that critical question, maybe even meditating on this passage in Romans chapter 2, when he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why he's kind, to lead you to repentance, to lead you into his kingdom. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Maybe he was meditating on Hanan as he wrote those words. So don't reject the mercy of God through the son of David who is establishing a bit of heaven in this sin-broken world, the kingdom of Christ. If you receive that mercy that is offered through this king, you will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the son of David. But if you reject that king, your personal rebellion will be brought underneath his feet one day. And that is the Spirit's word to you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. A difficult text, but such an important, encouraging text, reminding us of your great goodness expressed to your King. May that goodness impress on every listener's heart this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all the healing stream. 
you could join us today uh, at home or on your phone traveling somewhere if you're new to first baptist church fisherville uh you're reaching you're you're seeing us through the live stream uh please we want to know about you and we'd love to get in touch with you so you would you can contact the church uh, you can contact us through social media but do reach out we want to know uh, if you're new and in the area and need information we'd love to get it to you this is not normal but until normal is normal again and we're going to keep meeting like this, but God bless you. Let's pray together and be dismissed. Father in heaven, we are scattered, but the grace that binds us together is not. Uh, thank you for loving us, for drawing 
near to us, even as remotely as we are, um, being scattered throughout the city, across the, the country, even around the world. It's possible for people to be watching in various time zones and various cultures, and it's just a, it's a, it's a wonder that such a thing takes place, and yet you have taken even the means of internet streaming and use it for redemptive purposes. Lord, we do pray that uh, as these broadcasts go out, as people and gather and meet to watch or rewatch, that that Christ is seen, that Christ is is known, and that Christ has come to be known salv- uh, savingly, salvifically, in the hearts of those uh, who don't know you and who watch. And for your church, your sons and daughters, who gather around their phones or computers, their TVs, and watch, I pray that, Lord God, that the grace that comes from your preached word and when your truth is sung together, that it would minister to them, sanctify them, be a means of grace as you draw them close and draw them near. Thank you again for this time. Uh, most of all, we love Christ, and we thank you, and we pray all these things by your Spirit and through him, our high priest, who is at your right hand, waiting for that time when all things will be put under his feet. And so we ask these things to the glory of his name. Amen.